it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, February the 28th, 2022. A brand new broadcast week here on the Guy Benson Show. The final day of the month of February. I'm Guy Benson. Very happy to be back here on the air with all of you. After a short vacation, it is the Guy Benson Show. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast free every single day on demand. GuyBensonShow.com. Here's our lineup today. Peter Ducey with an update for us this hour, live from the White House. Sandra Smith will take a look at everything that's happening from an economic perspective, globally, but also here at home. What does it mean for us, you and me specifically? Josh Krasauer with the politics of all of this, plus a bit of a preview of tomorrow's State of the Union address. What does he see coming? Some dreadful polling numbers for President Biden. Nothing new there, but it's pretty dark for the Democrats right now. And in our final hour, Congressman Michael Waltz, Republican of Florida, who is a decorated combat veteran. We will talk to him about Of course, Russia and Ukraine, perhaps China and more. That is all ahead today on the show. Fox News alert as we begin. Let's bring you, as we always do, the stats on COVID. 78.8 million confirmed cases of COVID in the United States. Those are positive tests that are known by the government. The true number of cases in this country over the last two years, much higher than that. The death toll now 946,883. People dying in America during the pandemic with or of COVID. Meanwhile, the Dow is down nearly 500 points. It's down 496 right now with 52 minutes to go until the closing bell. Dow trading at 33,564. We'll bring you an update with Sandra in the next hour on where the markets close today. Well, as I alluded to at the very top there, and regular listeners are well aware, I was off last Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday on a short vacation with Adam, with friends, and boy, did I pick an interesting time to go on vacation. Monday and Tuesday on this show, and also filling in on TV for Kennedy, we were discussing the possibility of what Russia might do, what Putin might decide. And we had some very smart people on this show with divergent opinions on that front. There was a very significant school of thought that suggested that Vladimir Putin was not really interested in a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. He would probably stop at the Donbass region, declare victory, take some time off, and go take another bite out of Ukraine down the road, which seems to have been the pattern more recently. However, U.S. intelligence, Western intelligence, they were sounding the alarm that they believed a much broader invasion was coming, that Putin's designs were grander in scale. And U.S. intelligence, of course, has experienced some dramatic setbacks in recent memory. 
we can list some of them. I think you mostly know what I'm referring to. Iraq, of course, comes for, you know, front and center to mind. But on this issue, on this question, it appears that our intelligence mostly, broadly speaking, got it right. Because as soon as I left the country, basically that first night, got back from dinner, was expecting to have a few relaxing days and checked my Twitter feed, and it was off to the races with Vladimir Putin flexing his muscles and invading Ukraine. And it was, in some respects, even though I knew that it was possible, I knew that this was very much in the realm of options, it was still shocking just to see something this brazen happening in real time. So sometimes on vacation I unplug and put away my phone as best I can, put away my laptop. This was not one of those trips. If you follow me on Twitter, at Guy P. Benson, you know I was following all this stuff pretty closely throughout the holiday because, you know, sometimes world events don't really care very much about your personal plans, obviously. And I felt a responsibility to be at least relatively abreast of the latest developments, to be informed about what was happening, so I could come back here today and hit the ground running on Monday's show. And I heard from many of you, actually, in the last few days saying, we're looking forward to you coming back. Believe me, me too. I was excited to be back behind the microphone to talk about all of this with you and especially with people who know a lot more than I do. As we discuss what has been taking place and what is going to happen in the coming days, maybe weeks, what we're going to try to do here is recognize some of our own limits. And this is what we did with COVID as well, right? Especially in those early days, a lot of us were flying blind, relying on experts. And I think generally, if we're talking about the scope of a topic that is far outside like, you know, my expertise. I want to be transparent about that with you, the audience, not pretend like I know exactly what's happening, that I'm a total expert on things, and that you can take my word to the bank based on my opinions. I try to be well-informed. I try to ask good questions, and I try to bring people on this show who know more than I do to help educate me and you all together in real time. And my job is to know enough to know which questions matter. We're going to apply that standard as we did on COVID, and I think we all got smarter collectively through COVID. We're going to do that here on another issue that is extremely important, frightening in a lot of ways, with a very uncertain outcome. So... Right out of the gate here, I just wanted to sound that note of humility, recognize that we have blind spots and be transparent about them, and also just recognize that in this fog, this mist of war, I think it's important just to say outright, we are going to get things wrong. We are going to work hard to avoid that, but there is information warfare afoot in addition to the kinetic warfare from this outrageous 
and totally indefensible aggression on the part of the Russians. So there is propaganda, right, that's swirling from both sides. And there will be times where there are reports that turned out to be wrong or false or exaggerated or embellished. And there will be other instances, and we've already seen this phenomenon playing out, where things are denied or appear not to be the case, and then it turns out later that the opposite was true in the other direction. So we're going to do our best here to navigate all of it for you as best we can. A few opening thoughts from me, just from where I sit in my opinion. I have been seething about what Russia has done and is doing. For instance, they've just been bombing in the last day, still right now, They've been bombing the city of Kharkiv, which is, I think, telling. That is a city in the northeastern area of Ukraine. It's close to the Russian border in the northeast. And it has a pretty substantial, significant Russian identity. Most of its residents speak Russian. Right? Putin lied and said, oh, we're just going to do kind of a minor incursion, right, to borrow a phrase. And we're going to put in peacekeepers, quote-unquote, in that eastern region and the, the breakaway provinces, the new independent republics, whatever he was wanting to call them. That was all spin. But the lie was it's just going to be peacekeeping. And he was going along with the same playbook that he's used time and again. And... The excuse, right, the justification was, well, these are sort of ethnic Russians. These are Russian-speaking people who need to be protected. If ever there were a city in Ukraine that would confirm Putin's twisted view of things and say, yes, welcome, Russia, please liberate us, theoretically, it might have been Kharkiv. And yet that is not what has happened. That city is held out, along with the rest of the country, heroically, and the Russians are brutally bombing the place, including civilian targets. So in addition to this illegal, unjustifiable war launched by Vladimir Putin, there are war crimes underway, flagrant war crimes. And the fear is that it could get worse. Because I think that there is some degree of desperation now setting in for the Russians. Because things have not gone according to plan. There's widespread reports about, in Russian state media, a story getting published that appeared to have been pre-written, assuming the fall of Ukraine, and talking about the future of a united Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine together. That one accidentally slipped through and got published which offers a window into what Putin had in mind, but that hasn't happened. As of this afternoon, what, day five of this, the final day of the calendar month, basically all of what you would imagine would be Russia's strategic objectives, the top ones, remain unfulfilled. That's not to say that they won't fulfill any of them, but I think that they have miscalculated, by they I mean him, Badly. And I 
don't think that they were prepared for what has happened. To say that they bit off more than they could chew goes back to my previous analogy about previous incursions and annexations and aggressions of Russia in Ukraine. They want to swallow the whole thing this time. They thought they could do it seemingly quite quickly with limited resistance. And that has not happened. Now, I think it's important to warn against triumphalism. Because just to put my cards on the table here, I am, as you probably have gathered, totally on the side of Ukraine. And totally on the side against Russia. And I have very little patience for people who make excuses for Russia. Let alone, like, valorize Russia or point to Putin in some sort of sort of admirable way, which is not to say, oh, you know, acknowledge that he's, you know, cunning or anything like that. But to admire him, I, that is not something that we're going to subscribe to at all here. I have a very low opinion of him. Even lower today than it was a few days ago, given everything that he has done, that he has ordered. And even though I'm very much rooting for Ukraine, rooting for democracy and freedom and rooting against the malign influence of the Kremlin, you can get engaged in confirmation bias. You can only see stories that make you feel good about what's happening. We're going to try to avoid that. While, again, being humble, we have no idea what the outcome is going to be. We don't know. There is a very real possibility that the Russians are going to lay siege to Kiev and topple the government. And, God forbid, kill Zelensky and install a puppet government. Now, I think they'd still have a mountain of problems after that. I'll get into that in a second. But things could get much darker here. They could also lose. The Russians could lose. And the extent to which they've already been losing in some key ways, I think, is eye-opening. And inspiring, frankly, in some ways. Ala Pundit is a writer at hotair.com that I read every day. I think he's very insightful. Here's what he writes today in a piece called A Historic Debacle, talking about what Putin has unleashed. He writes, as far as I can see, the best case scenario for Putin, emphasis, the best case, is that Russia bombs Ukraine into rubble, kills Zelensky, installs a puppet ruler whom every surviving Ukrainian will dream of killing with his bare hands, and commits to an unwinnable long-term military occupation to protect the new puppet regime. How does Russia pay for that occupation? How overextended will its military become having to police Ukraine? How many Russian soldiers will die there? How long can Russia's economy cope with the strain of the unprecedented sanctions that have now been applied? The more brutal the attack on Ukraine gets, the less appetite there will be in the West for lifting those sanctions once Kiev has fallen. That's if Kiev falls, I would add. Reading from Alapanda today. Consider how suddenly the tectonic plates of international relations have shifted just in the past 72 hours. Announcements from Germany... Sweden, Finland, even Switzerland? I'm now paraphrasing. The EU sending weapons, the IOC, FIFA, now treating the Russians like a a total pariah. 
the central bank of the Russian Federation being targeted in meaningful ways by the United States and the EU. I mean, a lot of the wishy-washy, light-stepping has given way to much more forceful, unified action, perhaps in a way that Putin is surprised by. Back to Allah Pundit's piece quickly. Putin's foremost goal in his 20 years as ruler of Russia has been to weaken and ultimately shatter NATO, clearing the way for him to build a new Russian empire. Whatever happens in Ukraine now, that goal is up in smoke. I think a lot of the experts were wrong. I think Putin has miscalculated badly. But the future is very, very, very much unsure. That is how we are going to approach this war and our coverage of it. We're going to get to much more on this front and some other stories as well straight ahead. It's the Guy Benson Show. We are just getting started today. Don't go anywhere. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Precise, personal, powerful. Is America's weather team in the palm of your hands? Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Russia's initial aims have been frustrated. The, 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 the military problem gets harder and harder for them uh, as they extend their lines of communication and supply lines. If you look at the numbers of forces, you know, it looks like a lot, you know, 160,000. Okay, what, about one-third of that is combat troops. Now you divide it across four different axes, you know, it's pretty easy, easy for that force to become dissipated and to become absorbed in the vast territory of Ukraine, you know, a country of 40 million people that occupies the space of Texas. Right. Mm-hmm. So so I think that this is an impossible military problem for him if his aim is to not only remove you know, Zelensky from power, but then to control mm-hmm. Ukraine. He okay. won't be able to control Ukraine. I'm Guy Benson. That was H.R. McMaster, former national security advisor under President Trump on Face the Nation yesterday, talking about this huge problem, this corner that Putin has painted himself into by choice. Ukraine is the size of Texas and has a population larger than California. And the people of Ukraine are sending a message in no uncertain terms that they will not knuckle under. So Putin has created a crisis. It's been a debacle so far for the Russians. More coming up. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Roe. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We continue on the Guy Benson Show and a Fox News alert as we bring you the latest here. Vladimir Putin, the thug of Moscow, has put his nuclear forces on high alert, which is, of course, escalating tensions. Meanwhile, the Pentagon here at home saying that the Russian military and Russian forces have been frustrated. I think they were not expecting the doggedness of the opposition, the resistance within Ukraine. And the, I would say, 
eyebrow-raising unity, not just in our country, but around the world. And that's not limited only to the West or traditional Western powers either. I think that the Russians have put themselves out on an island. And then the question is, what's the exit path for them? Even if they quote-unquote win by sacking Kiev in the coming days, if they're able to do that, the Russians do seem a bit shocked by this, stunned almost. Talks, meanwhile, are underway between a delegation from both of the countries to try to put an end to the violence. But the violence is very much underway as we speak. We've been talking about uh, some of the really heinous bombing in a number of Ukrainian cities. And there are leaders in Ukraine that are warning their population to gird for some very intense fighting and some very, very difficult days ahead. Let's get to our first guest on today's program. It's Peter Ducey, Fox's White House correspondent, who joins us now live from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Peter, good to have you back. Thanks for having me, Guy. You've been putting in very long hours, as have many people in these recent days. What can you tell us just about the overall atmosphere at the White House over the course of this conflict? Because obviously it's exhausting But there has to be at least, I would imagine, some sense of surprise and relief that some of the worst-case scenarios, at least so far, have not played out. I I don't know if I would describe it necessarily like that. Um, I think that, uh, you know, they want to just continue explaining how sanctions work. I'm looking at a screen right now of Jen Psaki next to a graphic about uh, U.S. security assistance. Uh, You know, It's too early for them, I think, to be relieved. But with that said, you talk about the mood uh, this weekend, quiet, because the president wasn't here. He was in Delaware. And today, um, you know, Jen Psaki will get questions about it, but the president's only on-camera event is a commemoration of Black History Month. It is not about this. And so, you know— they like the phrase walk and chew gum at the same time, and I guess that's what they're trying to show that they can do. I saw the report over the weekend, I guess it was on Friday, that Biden was, as you mentioned, going back home to Delaware, gone for the weekend. And I saw some people, I guess, defending it, saying there was a death, someone close to him, so he was going back to pay respects. I don't know exactly what the timeline was on that, but just from an optic standpoint, Peter, with the whole world focused on this really violent spasm, this shooting war, this invasion of a of at least once a major power of a neighboring country, to have the American commander in chief go not on vacation necessarily, but you know, leave the White House for the whole weekend back to Delaware, it did have me scratching my head a little bit, because even if there was a funeral or something, I mean you can take Marine One, go for a few hours and come back. Is this the White House strategy maybe to to signal that Americans, you know, shouldn't get too panicked about this? Or are they just going about their business the way that they always do, whether or not that sends a signal to the rest of the world that might be interpreted badly, uh, you know, or, or otherwise? I'm, I'm just trying to figure out what the thought process is there. I, I think it's that second one. Just they're going to go about their business, uh, you know, the 
the rest of the G7 wants to get on a Zoom to talk about punishing Putin, they'll do that. Um, but it's going to happen during normal business hours. <laughs> um, and, you know, Jen Psaki said before the president left on Friday, he has the ability to make a secure call from anywhere. Okay, fair enough. But the the rest of the package that a president needs, you only have access to that uh, here at the White House or at Camp David. Mm-hmm. And so, so he was not able, no matter what they say, uh, especially since he was not – his Wilmington house is not set up, from what we understand, to host a big in-person meeting of the principals. Um, so no matter what they say, he was not as able to deal with what is going on overseas in real time uh, while he was away. People may question whether that is strong leadership. I know the White House is going to try to portray what they're doing, the president's moves as strong leadership. But some of the reports I've read in the last day or two, Peter, suggest that, and this goes to my first question, not necessarily about relief, but a sense of pleasant surprise to some extent. The Europeans have gotten awfully serious, awfully quickly. And it seems like in some ways we, the the Americans, have been sort of catching up, saying, oh, wow, Europe is going there. All right, let's go there, too. I'm not saying that's bad and that we shouldn't be doing those things, and I'm I'm by no means taking a shot at the EU. I mean, some of the holdouts, you know, Germany and Italy and others seem to fall in line pretty rapidly. It just doesn't necessarily seem like it's America out front here. It's It's not. And this White House would like you to – believe that everything they're doing is uh, like arm in arm with European allies. But is it arm in arm or, like you're suggesting, are we following? And you could probably make an argument for both. I want to ask you about the State of the Union address. It's tomorrow night, and I know that there were some hopes inside the White House and within the Biden operation that this would be an opportunity really for the president to reset here at home His numbers have been really poor. We'll run through some of those a little bit later on the show today. And here's a big opportunity with a big megaphone with a lot of eyeballs to maybe try to shift the narrative a little bit. Now you have this war that's underway. I'm just wondering, I don't know how much insight they're giving to the press, you know, on the record or on background or even off the record about their thinking as they go into tomorrow evening. But I wonder, based on your answers to my questions so far in this discussion, Peter, might they be planning to kind of stick with their original game plan with the State of the Union and maybe add some stuff? I mean, they're not going to ignore what's happening in Russia. I think some Americans might expect an overhaul of the speech based on this huge geopolitical earthquake that's happening. But if they're trying to signal business as usual, you know, under normal business hours, and we've got other stuff we've got to take care of, walking and chewing gum and all of that, might they not totally um, uproot the plan for the State of the Union address and go with maybe the original, uh, you know, transcript, roughly speaking, uh, based on what you're telling me, that at least seems like a possibility. They, they will have some – based on some White House guys that I talked to this weekend as I was preparing for Fox News Sunday's panel, um, they're directing me to like a speech that the president gave a month ago before his two-hour press conference where – and so I went back and I looked at it, and that's where he talks about 
uh, getting people vaccinated and about wages increasing and about uh, his plans uh, concerning the implementing the infrastructure package. And so uh, there will be some added foreign policy, but it's going to be a lot about that. And of course, you know, timing is everything. It's amazing that they know that from tonight into tomorrow, there's going to be a big scientific breakthrough with COVID. And just hours before the president takes to the microphone, uh, people at the White House and on Congress, uh, in Congress, are going to be able to take off their masks. Yeah, Isn't that, uh, that just, just great luck. Uh, what what luck? I mean, the, the science to change so coincidentally to align with this political speech that he's giving, and of course, we also had a, a SCOTUS <laughs> announcement uh, late last week with the new nominee. Right, that was also right. they could they could announce that nominee whenever they wanted. Breyer's yeah. not going until the end of the term, so we're talking about months. They announced that a few days ago. All of a sudden, quote-unquote, the science changes in Congress. The science changes at the White House. I know you guys can stop wearing masks, what, tomorrow now? I mean, it's, it's not really subtle, Peter. And, and I mean, I, it's, I think a lot of people will really roll their eyes at all of that. But also, I, I just, just to circle back, <laughs> so to speak, to something that we were just discussing, it just seems, and again, I could be reading the room wrong, and maybe the Biden you know, political team has a better read on this than I do, but it seems like it would be pretty tone deaf if the president decides to come out tomorrow and give a speech that like, has a few lines thrown in about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but is generally just sticking with what they were planning to do a month ago with those broad themes. Of course, they're going to touch on a lot of different topics. That's what they always do, these laundry lists in the State of the Union. But, I mean, I, I'm just imagining a, a recalibration of what the country and the world wants to hear tomorrow. They have to at least be aware of that sense in the White House, you would think. Uh, you would think, but, uh, you know, these are speeches that they work on for months, and uh, it's not – a fight that the U.S. is really involved in. So, you know, what's he going to say? He's not going to send troops to fight. He's not going to enforce a no-fly zone. And so I think he'll talk about defending democracies worldwide and the costs that that can have. But I I really don't think that there's going to be a total overhaul. Last subject, Peter Ducey who joins us here on The Guy Benson Show, live from the White House, with Jen Psaki giving, and now she's answering questions literally right now at the White House in the briefing room. I've seen some sound bites of interviews that she's given, and other senior administration officials have been out there talking about various things as well. On energy, for example, she's saying, yes, we have to get energy independent, but not with fossil fuels. That that seems like kind of a detached statement to make given the dynamics at play right now, what brought us to this point with Russia and Europe and why, you know, the EU maybe took so long to finally come around. That seems a bit, again, aloof. And then you also have administration officials saying openly that they plan to continue working with the Russians on important issues like the Iran deal and those negotiations and climate change. I just wonder how White House officials and other sources that you talk to are trying to square this circle 
where they have extremely harsh rhetoric for Russia and they say that you know the U.S. is trying to rally the world and, and they're having success in leading the world on uh, treating Putin like a pariah, but also saying we're not going to you know drill here at home, we're not going to exploit our vast fossil fuel resources here at home, and by the way, when we need the Russians on issues like climate change and getting some deal with Tehran in place, we're going to continue to engage in diplomacy. It just feels like there's a lot of dissonance there. Yeah, and so the two-part answer then would be, number one, Jen Psaki told me on Friday, uh, that's just how diplomacy works. Uh, yeah, we got to talk to the Russians about the Iran deal because uh, that's how diplomacy works. But what is missing from that, I think, is – you know, the people that we're dealing with, the Russians, are not being diplomatic right now. And so, yeah, they want to be diplomatic, but, but they're bombing civilians kind of takes, in a yeah, war that they takes started. Two to tango with that. And then um, in terms of the energy, yeah, things are going bad and it's going to co- cause people a lot more to gas up their cars here in a couple of weeks. Um, but the number one priority from day one has been getting the country away from fossil fuels and it's nothing yet has risen to the level that is going to make uh, global warming and climate change uh, not this existential threat uh, worse ultimately than Russia if you if you piece it all together. Peter Ducey, Fox News White House correspondent at the White House with us today. Peter, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, guy. Talk to you soon. Well, we'll talk soon. The Guy Benson Show continues after this short break. Stay with us. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We're back on The Guy Benson Show. Fox News Alert. We were just chatting with Peter Ducey, our White House correspondent. In the last segment, our other White House correspondent at Fox News, Jackie Heinrich, has been engaged in a significant back and forth with Jen Psaki, who's at the podium briefing during this time of crisis. Let's dip in live and listen together. When it comes to releasing more reserves and more barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, where are those negotiations right now? Is the administration closer to moving forward with that, given the sanctions and what we're seeing? I don't have anything to preview for you on that front. It remains an option on the table, and obviously it would help meet any supply issues in the marketplace. There are conversations that we've been having with global partners, and obviously we have our own uh, strategic petroleum reserve stockpile to tap into. Characterize if you're close to making a decision on that front, though, given what we are seeing and obviously the global impact that these are of our sanctions. It has remained on the table. I just don't have anything to predict for you at this point in time. Okay. Just a short time ago, the president was asked by our colleague here um, if Americans should be concerned about a nuclear threat. He said very firmly no. Can you explain what gives him that confidence? Because, as I said a little bit earlier, um, while we think provocative rhetoric regarding nuclear weapons is dangerous and adds to the risk of miscalculation and should be avoided, which we're not going to indulge in, we are continuing to assess President Putin's directive, and at this time we see no reason to change our own alert levels. We've also seen uh, throughout this crisis uh, President Putin falsely allege uh, that they are under threat uh, and use that as a predicate for taking more aggressive action. So we assess, we have our own capacities and capabilities here, but nuclear war cannot be won. And what everybody should be doing around the world is taking steps to reduce the rhetoric, reduce the tension, and that's certainly what our objective is. Um, One breaking news development that I wanted to ask you about, the U.S. has expelled 12 diplomats, 12 Russian diplomats. The Russian ambassador 
uh, just said a short time ago that that move was a hostile step toward Russia. Um, can you give us the thinking behind the decision? And, and again, following up on some of the lines of questioning that you've already gotten, could there be a backlash to this step? Is this escalatory? Well, let me first say that today's action has been in the works for several months. Uh, we informed, the United States informed the United Nations and the Russian mission to the United Nations that we are beginning the process of expelling 12 intelligence operatives from the Russian mission who had abused their privileges of residency in the United States by engaging in espionage activities that are adverse to our national security. So it takes some time to make those evaluations. Um, and that, again, those actions were, uh, were in the works for a month. And your response to the Russian ambassador who called this a hostile act? I think the hostile act is committing espionage activities on our own soil. And, Jen, just finally, on the issue of refugees, yeah. you have also said, you were asked by my colleague earlier today, um, whether the administration would move to give refugees from Ukraine protective status. Can you give us a timeline for that? Right, we are approaching the, the top of the hour here on the Guy Benson Show. We wanted to give you just a flavor from inside the briefing room at the White House today that was live just there. We were listening together to Jen Psaki briefing the press, taking questions, fielding some from Jackie Heinrich. And whenever the White House is answering questions about nuclear war, that's not a great sign. It's obviously disconcerting to a lot of people. And let's, you know, take a breath. I don't think anyone's seriously talking about that prospect, but it's at least in the discussion, given what's happening so far. We've got a very busy hour ahead. Sandra Smith, Josh Krasauer, stay with us. That's all coming up. It's The Guy Benson Show. city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show it's a new hour here on the guy benson show our middle of three between three and six p.m eastern every weekday our website here at the show is GuyBensonShow.com. GuyBensonShow.com podcast is free on demand you can also follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show. As we begin our second hour, let's bring you a Fox News alert. The Dow closes down 166 points today to 33,892, but that's significantly better than session lows, a bit of a rally over the last hour of the trading day. And who better to discuss all of this and looking at just the markets, our economy, the global markets, in light of what's happening overseas, no one is better, in my view, to discuss all of those things and help us put them in context than Sandra Smith, co-anchor of America Reports with John Roberts and Sandra Smith, every weekday, 1 to 3 Eastern on Fox News Channel. I was watching earlier. She also has a background in business journalism. We talk about the economy all the time with Sandra when she's here. And Sandra, we're very grateful for your time today. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. I guess my first question is, we watch, and, and I'm not someone who follows the markets nearly as closely as you do in their various gyrations, but you will watch the Dow, for example, sometimes react just with huge swings based on world events or, you know, a rumor or a, a bad report from something that, you know, the Fed chair said or what have you. Are you surprised at all 
by the, at least for now, relative resilience of U.S. markets. I mean, it, it kind of feels like even with this war raging and the sanctions coming down and major disruptions probably on the way beyond what we're already experiencing, it feels like at least here the markets are taking it relatively in stride, maybe absorbing it better than I would have anticipated. Is that, am I wrong to assess it that way? And what's your take on it? Well, look, you know, even General Kellogg today, when he was assessing the response of the Ukrainian people and Putin's underestimation of just how hard they would fight back, markets around the world are watching that guy. I mean, they're clearly seeing uh, the Ukrainian people fight back in a way that perhaps even Vladimir Putin did not expect. Their resilience, their resolve, um, it is it is on the world stage right now. And the markets see that. Uh, the markets see the extent to which they're fighting back. They see um, country after country, the latest Norway, to step up and say that they are committing uh, weaponry um, to the Ukrainian people to fight back in a way that not a lot of people predicted uh, the world would come together in that way, Guy. So mm-hmm. markets see that happening, um, although I, w- I will definitely nervousness in the markets. Um, there's a anticipation of what will come next, whether this fighting lasts days, weeks, or months. We just don't know how long this draws out. We don't know what Putin's next move is. Uh, they are trying to, with these sanctions, hit Putin where it will hurt. But as you well know, uh, Guy, on paper, the Russian president owns very little. We, there, his, his wealth is, is hidden. It's estimated that he's worth $100 billion, um, but it is very hard to freeze assets when you don't know where they are or where they are stashed. Um, that is the case with Vladimir Putin. Um, you know, on paper, as you saw the New York Times report, he, he makes $140,000 a year, has a small, a small apartment, a couple different residents around, uh, around the globe. Um, but not a lot is known about where his wealth is stashed. And so when it comes to targeting Putin himself to cripple him and his finances, that is a difficult, that's a difficult road to go down. But nonetheless, less the sanctions that have been imposed. Uh, they are crippling Russia's economy. You see the ruble now uh, is, is worth about a penny uh, when it comes to the U.S. dollar. Um, it, it, it's crumbled. The Russian economy is crumbling. Um, as you saw, even when it comes down to something as simple as people rush, pouring Russian vodka down the drain, um, we are canceling Russian sporting events. I mean, all of this is having a major, major economic impact. And the American people see that we are going to have to weather the storm here, too, because it's certainly sending oil above $100 a barrel when you look at the Brent uh, European benchmark oil contract and gasoline prices continue to go up as well. Yeah, I want to unpack a few of the things that you just mentioned. Let's start with the Russian economy because, you know, we're holding steady for now in the markets and our economy is rebounding in some ways, still painful with inflation uh, and things could get worse because of this conflict in other ways. But you just made mention of it, Sandra. What is happening to the economy in Russia is just a devastation. There is a meltdown. They didn't open their stock exchange today because it was going to be a bloodbath. They said, you know, let's just not even let's not even try. Their central bank is sort of in desperation mode. The ruble has collapsed. There are reports of runs on banks where their people are out there trying to to take money out. And at some point in terms of hard currency, they're not going to be able to get the money that they're going to you know try to withdraw. I even saw videos earlier today, Sandra, 
of long lines in subway stations in Moscow where Apple Pay and Google Pay were no longer working for Russians because of these sanctions, because of these coordinated actions. And so people had to queue up and figure out how they're going to even pay for their fare to get to work. I mean, this is really, and you mentioned you know, the soccer and sports, this is touching many different areas of Russian life beyond just a handful of oligarchs, although they're absolutely feeling some pain and some heat. There's some reports that there's grumbling there. Uh, even if Putin feels like he's untouchable, the more painful this gets for Russians across the country, uh, I think his dilemma only deepens. Can you just maybe put some more meat on the bones of how devastating this has already been for Russia's economy just a few days in? Well, the, you mentioned the run on banks. Analysts are predicting that that will intensify the run on banks by the Russian people. Um, the, the falling government reserves, um, that is leading Russians to scramble, sell their targeted currency for safer assets. You mentioned the ruble. Uh, the ruble has now fallen to its lowest level against the U.S. dollar in history. Uh, the stock market there has plunged. I mean, it, the, the Russian stock market is in comparison to the depth and breadth of the U.S. stock market, but it has had its worst week on record. As you mentioned, they had to stop trading altogether because you can't have that chaotic uh, of a trading day. We would do the same if, if the same thing ever happened here in the United States. We have triggers that, that would be set, and they would halt trading so that you could have a more orderly sell-off. Um, as far as the sanctions that have been announced so far and the impact, it's had a huge impact on the Russian people, Guy. But you have to ask yourself, does Vladimir Putin care? He, he cares if it affects his, his, his military purchases and himself, right? So I just described to you how difficult it is to specifically target Vladimir Putin. But how we know we can target him is, is specific revenues to himself and to his country via oil and natural gas sales. That is why the SWIFT international banking messaging system that so many of your listeners have heard about in recent days, that is why that became so important. That is the gold standard, Bloomberg put it, of international finance when it comes to trading um, various foreign currencies for energy supplies specifically with Russia. You eliminate them and isolate Russia from that, they lose a significant amount of their revenue. So that was a more specific, targeted, and immediate way to target Russia. Um, so, you know, And even going after their central bank, right, the U.S. and the EU, it does feel like not just militarily, and again, this is from where I sit, uh, through my prism, and I have blind spots, as I mentioned at the top of the show, but it does very much feel in these early days like Vladimir Putin not only misunderstood what was going to happen militarily, but has also underestimated the ferocity of the response from the rest of the world. I mean, the Swiss, the Swiss, Sandra, are getting off the sidelines and abandoning their traditional neutrality to, uh, you know, lend their assistance on freezing assets and, you know, in Swiss banks and that sort of thing. Sweden typically is neutral, but they're sending munitions to the uh, to the Ukrainians as well, to the resistance. I mean, it's been fairly comprehensive in a way that I would imagine if our president and our experts in this country weren't expecting the world to unify this uh, this quickly and this comprehensively, 
it uh, seems like a pretty sure bet right now that the Russians didn't see this coming, at least to this extent. I think that's completely fair to say. If, but you did see the warning. It came in during um, during our hours. America Reports was on the air uh, today. It came in a major threat from Russia mm-hmm. um, to those nations that are committing uh, weaponry for the Ukraine to fight. And, uh, you know, obviously they're, they're not happy with what they're seeing as far as the world coming together here. I think what's really interesting is Ukraine's ambassador to the, U- to the U.S., Oksana Markarova, uh, visiting with senators on Capitol Hill today. Uh, we'll see what comes from that. And as far as our additional aid to Ukraine, uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, she said to reporters today, we'll see what the number is in terms of aid, whatever it, uh, whatever it is. She said we will support it. My question to a lot of the military generals that I've been speaking to recently, and I've talked to some of our reporters on the ground as well, is the strategic challenge of Obviously, getting the approval for this additional aid and uh, and weapons to be sent into Ukraine, but then actually getting it there over the border and into the cities and into right. the hands of Ukrainian fighters. Absolutely. And so I think in the coming days, we, we're going to see those challenges and we're going to see those strategies laid out um, by those who are trying to help these Ukraines fight back, how we're getting them into their hands. I want to shift to the home front here in a moment. I just want to quickly observe that while the Russians are now leveling, as you pointed out, new threats about hostile actions from other governments saying, you know, we're going to there's going to be consequences if you're arming the Ukrainians, we're going to take notice and there's going to be a problem for you. I mean, how much of that is kind of a, a paper tiger roaring, given uh, given the the extraordinary challenges that they're already facing in Ukraine, where they seem to be you know caught off guard by the the intensity that they've been uh, you know, fought with so far, they don't really have a lot of spare time or, or spare resources to be settling other scores elsewhere. I mean, they can issue threats left and right all they want, and maybe there could be cyber attacks. There's certainly certain, you know, things that they might consider trying to do, but they're not really in a position of power right now where I think a lot of people will be shuddering at yet more Russian uh, you know, threats. Uh, that That's just my observation. Of course, the counterpoint to that is that they have a massive nuclear arsenal and there are people worried about how stable Putin is and how desperate he might be facing humiliation, thinking about his legacy. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts to this, but uh, overall, my, my reaction to this, uh, you know, saber rattling from Russia towards other countries, basically the whole world trying to help the Ukrainians is sort of like, you know, I'm not sure I believe that those threats are terribly serious or, or necessarily uh, actionable, given the huge hole that they've already dug for themselves just in that one neighboring country. Here at home, though, Sandra, there are Americans and we're looking at the polls. There's a lot of unity in support of Ukraine, opposition to Putin and Russia, support for, uh, you know, tough, tough sanctions against the Russians. I'm on board for all of that. There have been officials, Republicans and Democrats. Of course, the Democrats were on the show for the most part, but there are uh, there's a bipartisan group of American leadership and also Western leadership in other countries saying this will come at a price that, you know, these sanctions will absolutely be devastating to Russia, but they will also be to at least some extent painful for us. And we're already dealing with a lot of pain here uh, economically, especially when it comes to gas prices, when it comes to inflation broadly. 
what can the American people expect to see in terms of ramifications and ripple effects on you know the foreign policy piece of this, compounding what was already a, a, a difficult environment for so many people? Well, as far as the inflation picture, um, when you see the most recent polling ahead of the State of the Union um, tomorrow night, you still see that as polling number one concern of the American people is the high price of just about everything uh, for us. I mean, we're still in the home heating phase, the cold winter that we're all going through. Uh, if you're on a fixed income, you are devastated by the high price of your heating bills this, this winter. And Guy, while oil and gas prices are surging uh, and continue to do so up more than a dollar over the past year for gas prices at the pump, um, those are likely to continue higher. And I'll tell you why, not just because of the geopolitical risk and the actual cutoff of supplies um, and the squeeze on the market that there will be now uh, with Russia not being able to supply some countries with their oil and natural gas because those, those purchases have been cut off. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a squeeze in Europe that will greatly affect us here as well. But we haven't even gotten to the summer driving season yet. You know how it is Memorial Day when you typically start to see gas prices go up? So this is happening ahead of that um, when typically demand starts to spike more as well. And we've got an economy that's recovering and more people are driving and more trucks are shipping goods to and from. It's just going to it's going to exacerbate the inflation problem that we're seeing here at home, sadly, at a time when people are already dealing with that. So I think the markets are watching that very closely. Economists are warning that's a lot more pain to come for the American family. Um, You know, and all we can do, all we can do is watch right now how that plays out. And as far as the administration and they continue to be pressed on this, what are we doing to produce more oil and gas Mm -hmm. here at home? Because we have cut back on that under this administration. And we can certainly get to a point where we can at least produce the oil and gasoline here as a country. Yep. Although they're continuing to resist that and push back against that and sort of suggest that we can do all of these things and pursue their, you know, lack of fossil fuel goals. And I think to me that's uh, naive to the point of being dangerous. But that's another discussion here and a very important one, one of the elements of this uh, much bigger picture that we're all discussing and debating, given Russia's actions in Ukraine. We've got to leave it there for now. Sandra Smith is co-anchor of America Reports, along with John Roberts, every weekday, 1 to 3 Eastern on Fox News Channel. Sandra, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Guy. Thank you. We will step aside. We'll be right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. I mentioned that tomorrow is the State of the Union address, and one issue that the president will certainly raise is his nomination of Kentanji Brown-Jackson to the U.S. Supreme Court. She would replace Justice Breyer upon his impending retirement, and she is the only name that we actually mentioned here on the air when first discussing this vacancy because she was that clear of a frontrunner based on everything I was hearing and reading. And lo and behold, she's now the nominee. She is qualified. She's sitting on the D.C. circuit. She was a district judge before that, I believe a double Harvard grad, including Harvard Law School. She's a progressive who will be replacing a fellow progressive. And for a number of reasons, I've been saying all along, this is going to be a low stakes, relatively speaking, Supreme Court battle relatively low octane as well, if I had to imagine. There'll be tough questions. There should be. But I think it'll be 
low drama as far as these things go, and I put the over-under at confirmation votes around 52, and we will have more on that in the coming days. In the meantime, Josh Krasauer was going to join us next. We moved him to tomorrow for State of the Union preview. Instead, Jennifer Griffin, national security correspondent here at Fox News, she has time for us next. We will get to her next on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday and around the clock for free on demand on the podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. With us now is Jennifer Griffin, national security correspondent for Fox News Channel, and she is live at the Pentagon. Jennifer, great to talk to you today. Thanks for making some time for us. Thank you so much, Guy. I want to open with probably a difficult question to answer, but it's on the top of my mind right now. There's this this whole swirl of information out there about what's happening, who has the upper hand, have the Russians been knocked back, are they encircling Kiev? It's, it's It's hard to keep track of the latest developments within the larger context of this question. Who's winning militarily right now? Well, I think what you have to understand is, is that we are on day five. So what you are seeing, and this is what was anticipated, it may be going a little slower than the Russians expected. Uh, but they have now about 75% of their uh, entire forces, the 160 or so thousand uh, troops that they had put on the border on three sides of Ukraine, inside Ukraine now. Um, some of those convoys, uh, military convoys, tanks, and um, have been held up on roads because the Ukrainian resistance has been stronger than they expected. And guess what? The Ukrainian resistance is stronger than they expected. One, because these are uh, um, people fighting for their homeland, and that motivator is always the sort of intangible in warfare that you can't put your finger on, and, and these people are fighting. And they also were provided with very powerful Javelin uh, anti-tank missiles and Stinger missiles, and they are really taking it to the big, lumbering Russian military as it tries to make its way uh, from the Belarus border, where they had gathered, down to the capital, Kiev. And then also, simultaneously, they're doing a double envelopment from the, with, with forces, Russian forces, coming from the south near Mariupol. And they will start heading north up the Dnieper uh, to Dnepro um, and meet up with those Russian forces that are now um, uh, held up a little bit at the second largest city in Ukraine, um, which is uh, Kharkiv. They've had a bigger fight there than they anticipated. The Russians have not taken control of any population centers in these first five days. That's significant. They also have not established air superiority, according to uh, U.S. defense officials that I spoke to. this morning. That also is significant. In other words, they've not been able to suppress the Ukrainian uh, air defense systems, and there are still, we're told, um, uh, Ukrainian aircraft that are flying, and we've seen uh, Ukrainian anti-aircraft missiles engage uh, some of those Russian aircraft. So it is a very messy fight. The problem, and one thing we've learned is that the Russians also are short on fuel. They didn't plan well enough. They didn't bring enough fuel, and some of those uh, tanks and, and mechanized armor, uh, which all require a lot of fuel, um, are breaking down and they're out of gas. And they will probably sort out these supply chain issues or these supply issues and logistics issues in the coming days. Uh, the Russian, you know, might that has been assembled is still uh, powerful enough to 
to take over these cities. But remember, uh, and what we're seeing is there, it looks like they're trying to set up a siege of some of these cities that have been uh, like the capital, which are resisting. Um, and often what that then means is they're going to start employing very uh, imprecise weaponry that's going to start, you know, carpet bombing basically and rocketing um, civilian neighborhoods. So these are not precision we weapons we're seeing. They're not smart bombs. They're not being very careful. They're destroying uh, Ukrainian heritage. And, and in fact, uh, we've heard today that the International War Crimes Tribunal in The Hague, there's a case being brought to them about war crimes being committed. There's some reports that cluster munitions, cluster bombs are being used there. That's, again, international law and so it's way too early to call this uh, the Russian military has enough force to um, to you know take over all of Ukraine but will they be able to hold it they don't have enough forces to occupy the country they're going to face very very tough urban warfare they're going to face the kind of insurgency that the US faced in in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan and this could go on for quite a long time the the goal of NATO and the West right now is not only to help arm uh, quietly arm the Ukrainian uh, resistance which they're doing, sending in more anti-tank and anti-aircraft we weapons, but also, Guy, they also want to contain this to Ukraine because they don't want to get into <clears throat> a shooting war with right. Russia. They, this is, you know, these are two, nu these are nuclear powers that you're talking about. On that point, I've seen President Zelensky reportedly was asking the United States to help enforce a no-fly zone, NATO to enforce a no-fly zone over the you know in the airspace of Ukraine and i think to a lot of people in america they might hear that and think well that seems somewhat reasonable you know why let the russians you know uh do all this bombing if there's going to be carpet bombing just a no fly zone seems at least on on the surface jennifer like maybe a compromise we're not sending in troops this isn't a war necessarily but we're just trying to keep the fight somewhat fair by denying the russians the opportunity uh, to to assert air superiority. However, a no-fly zone really would involve an air war, right? And if and if the U.S. or NATO were involved in enforcing it, that would trigger a much wider war. Correct? Guy, let me just put it very simply. You set up. It, it, it sounds nice to set up a um, uh, a no-fly zone. It, it, of course, it seems you know reasonable on the surface and seems like the right thing to do. But the the second you do that, you're at war with Russia, and you have two nuclear powers at war. And the bottom line is that is why we're in the situation we're in. That the U.S. and NATO can't put troops on the ground. They can't fly over uh, Ukrainian airspace. They are doing the best they can under the limited circumstances in trying to avoid a nuclear war or a war that will invoke Article 5 uh, if Russia if Russia feels that it's under attack and that NATO warplanes are in there enforcing a no-fly zone and they fire on one of those planes, you suddenly have World War III. So it's, it's unfortunately, we're in the situation we are in because Russia is a nuclear power and because you have a very unstable, erratic leader uh, leading this war of choice that he's um, begun against a sovereign country to his south. Yes, and that was actually my next question was about Putin himself. We've seen a number of public statements, including tweets from Senator Marco Rubio, who sits, of course, on the Intelligence Committee. We've seen comments from the likes of Condoleezza Rice and others who have known or have dealt with Putin for many years 
who are talking about some sort of real shift, some sea change in Putin's outlook and his behavior and the way he's conducting himself with a a suggestion or really an assertion in some of these cases that he's losing it or he's become much less stable that to me seems to be a really really important thing to get figured out is this man losing it because already he's done things that a lot of the smart set didn't believe he would ever do in this context now he's done them uh you know he's he's at least making some noises about you know nuclear readiness today what are you hearing about the state of vladimir putin guy we are in a very very dangerous situation right now i don't think the world has ever been in a situation this dangerous uh you are dealing with a an erratic leader all of the world leaders who have met with him in recent uh weeks whether it was the finnish president or the french president have said that he's changed that he is isolated that he's not in touch with reality and even his own inner circle and the people he relies on you can see the look of fear on their faces he he dressed down his head of intelligence in front of the cameras last week this week the defense minister and the his um his top general Gerasimov they looked fearful in the videos that we saw so you are dealing with an unstable leader who is cornered his back is against the wall there is no clear way for him out uh and he is continuing to uh go move forward with this massive war uh in what he's going to it's going to get so much worse before it gets better and it's going to take very very careful management by uh NATO the United States um and the European allies this is a a, a moment in time that we have not seen in our lifetimes as what a follow up I think I heard you say just a moment ago that you think this is the most dangerous position the world has ever been in ever. I would say I would put it up there that it is um we are entering you you throw in the possibility of a cyber war spilling over a uh a nuclear conflict article 5 uh uh being invoked on a, in a european conflict an erratic leader who's cornered who is threatening to use nuclear weapons threatening to put them on high alert Uh this is not something we have seen in our lifetime. Jennifer Griffin, last question and it pertains to some of the things that you've been saying on air in this sort of round the clock covered Fox News and you and your journalistic colleagues at Fox have been doing a really an extraordinary job and uh, I'm proud to have you on the team. I'm proud to be part of this team. There has been some suggestion in certain quarters out there in the commentariat certainly you know the russians say this in their propaganda but there are also people in the west in europe and in here at home who are still kind of making excuses for putin here saying well he was provoked into this by the united states or by nato or by the west by ukraine you know there's it it seems to shift what the rationale is but some of this is at least an attempt to deflect the blame from him and from the kremlin And I just wonder based on the the breadth of your knowledge and your and your reporting that you've done over the years what you make of that analysis if you can call it that. Guy, I think history has shown that appeasers and apologists for 
autocrats who uh, threaten to use nuclear weapons and invade countries and threaten to wipe them off the map, it doesn't end well. So I'll just leave it at that. I'm go- I've got to go because we've got to get ready for our, our next live shot. But Understood. I think I think people need to really think about. Um, uh, this moment in history, they need to go back and read their European history and understand that what we're dealing with right now is uh, somebody that should not be um, appeased. You've got to run to go hop onto TV. We appreciate you carving out some time for us here on the radio. Jennifer Griffin, National Security Correspondent, Fox News, live at the Pentagon. Jennifer, thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back. I will turn to politics, some domestic stuff, some bruising numbers for President Biden here at home from the Washington Post and ABC News. Wait till you hear some of, I would say, the writing-on-the-wall numbers for Democrats. We'll get to those next on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. Still to come in our next hour, Congressman Michael Waltz, Republican of Florida, will be here. I teased before the break some domestic politics. It's not all Ukraine all the time here, although it's the biggest story in the world by far. And, of course, there's a tie-in. The American people are looking at this president and judging his job performance and judging it quite harshly. I saw a CNN poll out today on Ukraine and on this war asking, do you believe President Biden will make decisions related to this crisis that are good decisions. And the breakdown was almost exactly the same as his overall job approval rating, which is to say bad. I believe it was 41, 42 percent of the respondents said, yes, we trust him. A majority said they did not. And among independents, it was two thirds said they did not trust Biden to make the right call and calls, plural, when it comes to Ukraine and Russia. So the overall assessment of the American people of our president is dim right now and i want on that score to bring you the latest results from a washington post abc news poll which has the president's job approval rating overall down to 37 percent 55 percent disapproved so he's underwater by 18 points and what i think is also striking so his approval rating total right strongly approved plus somewhat approved you add that together it's 37 percent his strong disapproval is even higher than that, 38%. So more people strongly disapprove of the president and his handling of the presidency than approve at all of how he's conducting himself as president. And that is the third poll in the last three days that I've seen that has the president now in the 30s on overall job approval. I saw another one, Marist, PBS, NPR, that poll. Their pollster said this is... Approaching rock-bottom territory for President Biden. Now, another nugget from the Washington Post-ABC survey that I think is pretty significant at this stage of the midterm election cycle is what we call the generic congressional ballot. So if you're a politico and a political nerd, of course you know what this is. They ask the American people, which party would you like to control Congress? after this next election, and that's the generic ballot. It's not asking about your senator or your congressman specifically, but it's a, it's a wider barometer of national sentiment. Which party would you like to see in charge? And generally, 
over the course of decades, the Democrats have a significant advantage on this question. So when it's even close, like roughly tied, or the Republicans are slightly ahead, that generally signifies very bad things to come for the Democratic Party. Well, in this new poll, the Republicans lead by seven points, 49 to 42. That is their biggest lead among registered voters in two decades. That is a much bigger lead at this stage in the cycle from the Washington Post ABC News poll. They've been doing this for many, many years. It's a bigger lead for the Republicans at this stage in the cycle. So late February, early March, heading into a midterm election year. This is a better position for the Republicans than we saw in 2014 which was a red wave year. Republicans gained nine Senate seats that year, for example, and built on their already quite large House majority. In fact, at this point in 2014, the Democrats in this poll, in the Washington Post poll, the Democrats were up by one point. They're down seven today. What about 2010? Many of us remember 2010 rather very well. That turned out to be one of the biggest red waves of all time. 63 seats gained by the Republicans in the House of Representatives. At this stage, in this polling series, the Republicans were up three points among registered voters. It's currently seven points. Now, that's registered voters. We talked about this last week a little bit as well. Once you start looking at likely voters, in an environment like this, the electorate is going to look more Republican, not less based on the people who are most adamant about showing up. The intensity, the enthusiasm is on the side of the Republicans. So once you start putting in those likely voter screens, you're probably going to see a redder electorate emerging. And to that point, in the Washington Post ABC poll that I'm talking about, once they asked and they narrowed it down to people who are the most certain to vote, this is where the intensity gap really comes into play, the Republican lead isn't seven. It's it's 13 points. Now, look, I expect there's a long way to go. Democrats are going to come home towards the end of the cycle. There'll be a bit of an equilibrium that's going to come back into play. That's all plausible, if not likely. But if it's anywhere even close to this environment, they're going to get destroyed. The Democrats are in November. And, I mean, the numbers are there. A 31st House Democrat announced... He is retiring, not seeking re-election. That was announced today. They're streaming for the exits because they see what's coming. What's coming here is our final hour of The Guy Benson Show, and it's straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's our final hour here on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday. I'm Guy Benson, back from a short vacation. And as I mentioned at the top of the show today, it was quite a time to go away, just the news breaking out everywhere. And I'm delighted to be back here with all of you. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. 
GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast. If you miss any of the show today or any day, it's on demand, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious. Finland back in the news based on everything that we're seeing. They do bring us this delicious beverage. It's an adult beverage, so 21 plus only, please. Always drink responsibly. You can check out where it's sold near you across the United States. They are expanding. TheLongDrink.com. You can also order online, which is what we do here. As we begin our third and final hour of today's show, let's welcome back to the program U.S. Congressman Michael Waltz, Republican of Florida, representing the 6th District down there. He is the first U.S. Green Beret from the Army to be elected to Congress. And, Congressman, it's great to have you back here on the show. Yeah, hey, Guy. Welcome back, and good to be with you. So I want to ask you first about your overall impressions about what we're seeing in Ukraine. I asked this question of Jennifer Griffin, our colleague, in the last hour, and I understand it's a tricky one to answer, and it's it's not a simple answer necessarily, but based on what you are seeing and you are hearing, who's winning? Yeah, well, I think to set the stage for that, I mean – There are still a lot of things uh, that could have been done and should have been done, both by the Europeans and this administration, uh, to to deter Putin from doing this in the first place. Uh, The weapons should have moved sooner. Uh, There should have been greater numbers of them. Uh, I was out in Ukraine two months ago, and they were asking, begging uh, for Stinger anti-aircraft missiles, for anti-ship missiles, and the things they actually needed. They weren't getting them. Uh, And they uh, were asking for the sanctions to be in place, as were many Republicans. Uh, And so I think if I summed it up, you know, until probably the last 48 hours, too little, too late, and a lot of bark and not a lot of bite. That said, I think uh, Putin's miscalculations are are becoming clearer. Uh, One, uh, that he thought he could do a lightning decapitation strike. I think he completely underestimated Zelensky. He underestimated the will and nationalism of the Ukrainian people that has developed since 2014, uh, since their first invasion. He believed it was going to happen like it did in Crimea, uh, relatively bloodless, quick, and with little response from the West. Um, And I think the biggest story that's going to come out of this, uh, one of the biggest guys, is that the Russian army is a bit of a paper tiger. Uh, It's largely, it's a draft-based army, meaning... Uh, you know, they're forced to be there. They're not volunteers. Uh, many of them are incredibly young, untrained, quasi-literate. Uh, the equipment is old, and the logistics of of running and, and fueling and, and resourcing 200,000 troops in the middle of winter for this type of major invasion may have been more than the Russian army could bear. The question is, did Putin know that and overreach, or is he so isolated he's got to believe his own propaganda? Uh, and, and hence, uh, we are where we are. You mentioned Crimea, and I just want to stop there for a moment, because we were talking about that move that Putin made in 2014. After the Sochi Olympics, he then just went and stole Crimea. And he was met with international condemnation and some slaps on the wrist, but really nothing more. And I think that weakness at the time was something that he took to heart and internalized. And you can, of course, frame this as a criticism of the Obama administration. uh, And I think it is one. I think they deserve to be criticized for it. But when I look at 
sort of the maps of Ukraine and, and the news segments that are done and the infographics that are all over social media about where the attacks are coming from, how the invasion has uh, taken place logistically, there's just an extra level of fury that I feel seeing Putin invading deeper into Ukraine to steal more, he would like in this case, all of Ukraine from a previous part of Ukraine that he was able to steal with relatively little consequence. I feel like there's a pretty profound echo today. What is it? You know, eight years later, based on what happened under President Obama, and he's not the only one who bears responsibility, of course, but 2014 absolutely helped helped set the table for what we've now witnessed. Well, that's absolutely right. And just a quick history lesson, uh, you know, in 2008, also during the Beijing Olympics, when Putin invaded Georgia, uh, oil was over $100 a barrel. Uh, in 2014, it was over $100 a barrel. And it's right on the cusp of it now in, in uh, 2022 when he's doing it yet again. So the direct correlation between Putin being cash flush and emboldened when oil prices are high um, is, look, I mean, history's completely bearing that out. To your point on kind of the global and world condemnation, one place where I'll give the administration some credit is they stole the narrative from Putin. Nobody buys uh, his revisionist history. Nobody buys the accusations of neo-Nazism or genocide towards ethnic Russians in eastern Ukraine. And I think the administration constantly declassifying things like the false flag operations and the buildup uh, really helped set the stage to steal that narrative from Putin. And, and, and I do give them credit for that. Again, so that is you know, the flip side of that coin is the Ukrainians didn't have the arms that they needed. And the sanctions, I think, could have had a much, you know, if they take months to go in place, as President Biden has said, then why didn't we put them in place months ago uh, so that they would be affecting him now? Well, and it's also been kind of incoherent. They said the point of these sanctions is to deter Putin and the Russians, and they were confident that that would work. And then when it didn't work, Biden said, well, they were never really intended to deter Putin. That was hard to, to square, I think, for obvious reasons. And on the arming of the Ukrainians with defensive weapons, I think that's another fair knock. Look, I'm delighted to see what's happening in Europe and here at home and uh, the dramatic about face of the international community, which is often so weak and divided and tepid. That is not the case. And there's been a real turning point in the last couple of days. And, it, and it's very encouraging to see. There's no question about it. And that includes sending more lethal aid to the Ukrainians. We're hearing about fighter jets and missiles and, you know, anti tank stingers and all this stuff your point in your first answer congressman was we could have gotten them a lot more of that sooner and i just wonder logistically speaking in the middle of a war i mean i'm I'm no expert obviously but it would seem to me that having the ukrainians armed to the teeth uh, sort of in a maximal way earlier would be logistically a lot easier to have done than now in the middle of a war where you've got the Russian military present to try to funnel them some of this stuff. I'm glad that that that's apparently going to happen and it's been authorized and and those moves are underway. just seems like a heavier lift and a much less efficient way to do this than having done it already before this invasion occurred. 
No, that's absolutely right. Before we were able to fly in uh, all, all of this aid, you know, the body armor, the the radios, the the, the ammunition, uh, the, the things that they needed, we were able to fly it in directly to Kiev uh, and help them disperse it with our trainers. Now we can't fly in anything. The you know the airspace is contested, uh, so it has to move over land. And one of the questions, one of the things to watch out for uh, is, you know, will Poland uh, and Romania continue to supply an ongoing guerrilla war, uh, an, an ongoing Ukrainian resistance, and will Putin respond? Will he try to shut that border down, either with airstrikes, artillery, or, or other means? People ask, how can NATO get drawn into this? Uh, and, and, and that's one of the ways. The other thing to watch, Guy, is the Black Sea. Uh, there are reports of a Japanese merchant ship that was trying to go to Odessa was hit with a with a with a missile from a Russian ship. Uh, Turkey, I think we should be leaning very hard on Turkey as a NATO ally to close down the Bosporus uh, and the Dardanelles uh, for Russian warships. So there there's a there's some it other sounds like they're they're moving in that direction to unfold. That sounds yeah. like rhetorically they're moving in that direction. We'll see if Turkey actually uh, takes that takes that bold step. Um, but at, at the end of the day, you're absolutely right. This stuff will now have to move over land, cross border, and into a contested environment. And Putin may start to try to hit those convoys. One last thing, Guy, I think this is going to go from awful to absolutely tragic. Uh, the Soviet-Russian-Putin orthodoxy is if the lightning strike, the quick decapitation and put your puppet government in place doesn't work, then they go to scorched earth. Uh, they did it in Afghanistan in the 80s, Chechnya in the 90s, Syria uh, in, the, in the last decade, and we're starting to see them move that direction now out of frustration. Uh, and Putin, domestically, for his grip on power, can't afford to lose. He's backed into a corner, and that means the leveling of cities, uh, massive civilian casualties, and a refugee crisis. Uh, but, that, but that is the, the historic Russian approach. No, it's it's uh, appalling if that's what's going to come to pass. And there's already some some evidence of that. Uh, for example, in the northeastern part of the country, we're seeing some what looks like carpet bombing and we're seeing video of it. It's it's really astonishing and gut wrenching to watch. My guest is Congressman Michael Waltz, Republican of Florida. And you just mentioned something where you gave the Biden administration some credit on on some of the way they've handled this. And I'm appreciative that you did that because, you know, this can't just be about politics here at home, I know that the numbers are very bipartisan. The American people across party lines are strongly supportive of Ukraine, strongly uh, negative in terms of their sentiment toward Russia. I think it's important to understand that sometimes we need to set aside our, our partisan brawling here at home when there are other things at stake and there are American values at stake here. So I'm glad that you made that point. There are, of course, also areas for criticism. We heard Jen Psaki just the other day kind of poo-pooing the idea of energy independence through American fossil fuels, saying, yes, we want independence when it comes to our energy, but we don't want to do it through fossil fuels. That seems like a, a very naive, even dangerous position to have, uh, given a lot of the dynamics that led to this moment and a lot of the, for example, calculations that some of our allies in Europe made and had to be dragged into doing the right thing. So that was something that Saki said on energy. Then, meanwhile, you have this from John Kerry, the climate 
envoy for President Biden. In an interview just the other day in Cut 18, he said this. Massive emissions consequences to the war, but equally importantly, you're going to lose people's focus. You're going to lose certainly big country attention because they will be diverted and, and uh, I think it could have a damaging impact. I hope President Putin will help us to stay on track with respect to what we need to do for the climate. Look, I understand, Congressman, that his job is to be the climate envoy, but to say, you know, the real tragedy here is the carbon footprint of the war and the distraction of the world away from climate change. And we really hope still that, that Putin's going to help us on climate change. We know that we're leaning still today on the Russian government and Russian diplomats when it comes to Iran and another giveaway to the Iranian regime. I mean, I really have trouble computing those decisions from our administration in light of everything else that's happening. Well, to to quote the late John McCain, right, who said that, that, you know, Russia, you know, as a country was basically a gas station. Uh, I don't think Putin could give a rat's ass uh, about the carbon footprint. He certainly doesn't care about any kind of basic human rights. I mean, I would love for Harry to go to a refugee camp in Ukraine or Poland right now and, and, and give them that message. But the other piece, Guy, where this just is completely, it would be laughable if it weren't so tragic, is Russian gas is some of the dirtiest form of gas in the world. I actually had Biden's energy secretary, Jennifer Granholm, admit that to me. Uh, in a hearing when I was asking her about Nord Stream 2, especially compared to the much cleaner, uh, uh, much cleaner uh, American form of, of natural gas. The other thing, you know, the Russians just signed a huge energy deal with China to provide them 100 tons of coal over the next few years and their own gas deal between Russia uh, and China. So. This notion that we can flip a switch and and suddenly be a green economy, the Germans tried it, it's failed. They're now backtracking and moving back to nuclear and away from gas Mm -hmm. and towards American gas. But the other thing, I think the part that they completely miss, all of the Green New Dealers and Kerry, is that in order to move to a green economy, you're totally reliant on Chinese critical minerals, the lithium, the cobalt, the graphite. That's required to make the panels and uh, the batteries and everything else. Not only is it made with slave labor in Western China, modern-day slavery, that type of mining that they do to produce those materials is some of the most polluting and devastating uh, and, and uh, painful on, on workers and uh, miners from Africa to China to South America in the world. Right. So, there, there is no magic solution, but I can tell you in the near term, uh, we need to go back to energy independence. And if there is any intellectual honesty uh, in, in that White House, they would they would shift shift course very quickly. Congressman, just 30 seconds, just your reaction to the piece of the Biden administration still at the table with the Russians with Iran in respect to Iran and that <laughs> nuclear deal. <laughs> You know, I mean, conflict of interest, anyone. So I don't think a lot of people realize that both the Iranian negotiating team and the American negotiating team have not been actually physically talking to each other. The go-between, the mediator, has been Russia. And do you think Russia is actually being an honest broker in all of this? By the way, we just made a concession for Russia to provide nuclear know-how and technology for Iran's reactors. Uh, It's, it's, again, it's... It's astounding. It's laughable if it weren't so tragic. It is just mind-blowing.
Yeah, and it's it's one of the critiques that I'm going to keep making here while trying not to pile on too much because uh, there's there's a balance, and these are precarious times, no doubt. Congressman Michael Waltz, Republican of Florida, our guest here on The Guy Benson Show. Congressman, we appreciate your time today and every time you join us, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Guy. I appreciate it. Quick break. Right back. Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show, which is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which does not include vodka, but someone who loves vodka here at the team, of course, is producer Christine. Christine, have you seen that a lot of American liquor stores are now refusing to sell Russian-made vodkas? They're opting for other countries. They're putting up maps of Ukraine in place of where they used to stock Russian vodka. Are you making this sacrifice in your personal life on behalf of the people of Ukraine, or or is your favorite brand a Russian brand? No, my favorite brand is not a Russian brand. And, yes, I'm going to do my duty over here, and I'm going to stick to my Tito's. I think that that's very admirable. And, look, it is just – it's a little thing. There are small – signs, small steps that people can take, and they might feel powerless in the scheme of things, but they can send signals that are very powerful in some cases and just individual in others. And I want to give you a few examples of that on the other side of this break when we come back. It's The Guy Benson Show. Stay with us, please. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, we're talking about gestures and solidarity. And, of course, the most important form of solidarity and the most meaningful and impactful gestures are governments, particularly in the West and elsewhere, making Russia pay for what they're doing through actions, not words. And it was a slow build. I think the brutality of what the Russians have already done, the audacity of it, with perhaps much worse to come, that finally woke some governments up from a slumber. Some of it self-induced because they've come to rely so much on Russia, for example, for oil. But for normal, average people around the world, ordinary people, when there's a war abroad or a war in your neighborhood, in some of these cases, in terms of these populations, it can feel very daunting. It can feel overwhelming. And I think it's incumbent on people who feel strongly about these things to make those feelings known. Because there are people of Ukrainian descent, Ukrainians who are all over social media, who are drawing and deriving strength right now from the support of the world. I've seen some videos on Twitter and other social media outlets of large gatherings of pro-Ukrainian demonstrators, uh, demonstrations or demonstrators in cities all across the world waving that blue and yellow flag. There was a very moving one of, I believe it was in one of the Baltic states in the capital, the population singing together the Ukrainian national anthem. In solidarity. Yesterday in London, the prime minister in the UK, Boris Johnson, made a surprise appearance at a Ukrainian congregation, a church. The service was concluding and 
Prime Minister Johnson came and gave what was described as a rousing speech about solidarity with the Ukrainian people. And when he concluded his remarks in this church, he was greeted with a huge standing ovation and chants of thank you from the congregants uh, in this Ukrainian congregation. This was in Mayfair, London, yesterday morning, cut 19. Prime Minister Johnson is headed to Poland and Estonia tomorrow, I believe, to shore up the Brits' commitment to the NATO alliance and also, of course, to send a signal to the rest of the world, to Putin, etc. And I think what we're doing, at least here on this show, is trying to bring you the best information that we can without rose-colored glasses the way we want things to turn out, while also being crystal clear about who the aggressor is, who the villain is here, who the antagonist is here, and that would be Russia. Full stop. Ukraine has had its sovereign nation invaded again, this time in a totally egregious way, by its Russian neighbor, these bullies, And every story about the Ukrainian people, how extraordinary they have been, how truly brave they have been in the face of this, and the very steep price that they are expecting to exact, and they are vowing to exact, and they damn well will on the Russian military should this invasion continue, uh, I believe them because they are deeply, deeply invested. Now, on the other side of this conflict, as I mentioned, of course, is Russia, led by a nominal president. He's a KGB thug. He's a strong man. And there have been increasing reports about his profound isolation. I mean, you see the the photos of him. I think he's a COVID freak, right? He's doing these meetings at tables that are unbelievably long, where he's at the end of, you know, he's sitting at the head of one end of the table, and then, no joke, 40 feet away are his generals and his advisors. He's been holed up, reportedly, in various places. He is surrounded by people who are yes-men because they're terrified of him. There's been already a humiliation and some frustrations and failures. And look, a a cornered man with a lot of military power and nuclear weapons, I mean, that is a scary prospect. That said, you can't just let him off the hook and let him get away with things because he has nukes, right? It's it's a balancing act about what type of off-ramp would you perhaps give to Putin where he could maybe save some face and we could avoid this conflict getting worse. But, of course, I mean, he'd also have to give huge concessions for anything like that to be considered. But one of the underlying questions in all of this, as you try to assess what could that look like, is, is this man acting rationally at all anymore? And if the answer to that is no, and I'm not saying the answer is no, but there are some people who are very much at least implying that that might be the case, then the situation gets a lot scarier. And I'm not just, you know, saying that to be alarmist, and I think that we should, you know, keep our heads and take a breath and not catastrophize and assume that the worst is going to come next. But there are, you have to look at the the realm, you have to look at the range of possibilities realistically. 
And as you're trying to now analyze afresh what might happen, given what the Russians have already done, I think that critical question is at the forefront of my mind as to the mental state of Vladimir Putin, what he is willing to do, what he's not, what he's capable of, what he's not. I made a reference to this earlier. There are a number of people who are, I would say, in the know, at least to some extent, who have been suggesting rather openly that Putin has taken some sort of a turn recently. Here's a quick montage. You'll hear Mark Warner, who's the chairman of the Intelligence Committee in the Senate, H.R. McMaster, former Trump National Security Advisor, uh, Michael McFaul, former ambassador to Russia. He's been on this program. Condoleezza Rice, of course, former Secretary of State. In that order, listen here. Over the last couple of years, Putin has been more and more isolated. He's not been in the Kremlin for the most part. I don't think he's, he's a rational actor because he's fearful. He doesn't look very powerful. And this is going to jeopardize his ability to stay in power. That word rational actor is a very elastic, right? He's out at his compound, doesn't come into town very much, and under COVID he's been more isolated. He's increasingly unhinged in the way that he talks about the regime. Well, I met with him many times, uh, and uh, this is a different Putin. He seems uh, erratic. There is uh, an ever-deepening uh, delusional rendering of history. He's descending into something that I personally haven't seen before. That last voice was Secretary Rice. She was on Fox News Sunday. Harris Faulkner was hosting yesterday. And I actually want to play more of that clip. You'll hear the beginning of it again about Rice talking about how often she had met with Putin and her assessment, at least at this point, that Putin has changed in some sort of material and therefore relevant way. Cut 15, Fox News Sunday yesterday. Well, I met with him many times, uh, and uh, this is a different Putin. Uh, he was always, uh, as Senator Rubio said, uh, this was an ex-KG man, KGB man. He once said, you're, you're always essentially a KGB man if you are. So uh, he had that, uh, that tough veneer. He was always calculating and cold. But... Uh, this is different. He seems uh, erratic. Uh, there is uh, an ever-deepening uh, delusional rendering of history. Uh, it was always a kind of victimology about uh, mm. what had happened to them. Mm -hmm. uh, but now it goes back to blaming Lenin for the foundation of Kiev, of, of, of Kiev, uh, Kiev in the Russian, of uh, Ukraine. So he's, uh, he's descending into something that I personally haven't seen before. An ever-deepening delusional rendering of history. This is different, she says. He seems erratic. He's descending into something that I personally haven't seen before. That is profound, given the source and given the circumstances. So I put this question to one of our colleagues, Jennifer Griffin, national security correspondent here at Fox News. She joined us last hour on the program. I asked her about... Putin's state of mind and tweets from Senator Rubio and some of the assessments and comments you just heard there in those two sound bites. What is she hearing in her reporting? Uh, again, I think this is something that needs to be discussed carefully. Jennifer Griffin is careful. Here is what she told me in that exchange. I'll play a chunk of it in Cut 21. We've seen a number of public statements, including tweets from Senator Marco Rubio, who sits, of course, on the Intelligence Committee. We've seen comments from the likes of Condoleezza Rice and others 
who have known or have dealt with Putin for many years who are talking about some sort of real shift, some sea change in Putin's outlook and his behavior and the way he's conducting himself with a, a suggestion or really an assertion in some of these cases that he's losing it or he's become much less stable, that to me seems to be a really, really important thing to get figured out. Is this man losing it? Because already he's done things that a lot of the smart set didn't believe he would ever do in this context. Now he's done them. Uh, you know, he's he's at least making some noises about, you know, nuclear readiness today. What are you hearing about the state of Vladimir Putin? Guy, we are in a very, very dangerous situation right now. I don't think the world has been, ever been in a situation this dangerous. Uh, you are dealing with a an erratic leader. All of the world leaders who have met with him in recent uh, weeks, whether it was the Finnish president or the French president, have said that he's changed, that he is isolated, that he's not in touch with reality. And even his own inner circle and the people he relies on, you can see the look of fear on their faces. He, he dressed down his head of intelligence in front of the cameras last week. This week, the defense minister and the his um, his top general Gerasimov they looked fearful in the videos that we saw so you are dealing with an unstable leader who is cornered his back is against the wall there is no clear way for him out uh, and he is continuing to uh, go move forward with this massive war uh, in what he's going to it's going to get so much worse before it gets better and it's going to take very very careful management by uh, NATO the United States um, and the European allies this is a, a, a moment in time that we have not seen in our lifetimes I just want to follow up I think I heard you say just a moment ago that you think this is the most dangerous position the world has ever been in ever I would say I would put it up there that it is um, we are entering you you throw in the possibility of a cyber war spilling over a uh, a nuclear conflict article five uh, uh, being invoked on a, in a European conflict an erratic leader who's cornered who is threatening to use nuclear weapons threatening to put them on high alert uh, this is not something we have seen in our lifetime. That was Jennifer Griffin earlier here on The Guy Benson Show. Uh, words that I think are difficult to hear, but it's where we are right now. I'm going to step aside. When we come back, we'll have the home stretch. I want to really take my hat off to the president of Ukraine. His leadership has been absolutely extraordinary. We will explain when we come back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. Podcast is free every day. GuyBensonShow.com. Let's talk about Zelensky, president of Ukraine. This man was a comedian, a stand up comedian. He was famous in the country. He played the president on TV in the past. He won their version of Dancing with the Stars. I've seen the footage. It's gone viral on social. 
And it's sort of surreal that that man is now leading this country at this moment in world history. He was the voice of Paddington Bear when it was translated and dubbed into Ukrainian. He, it was his voice. It was Paddington. Right? He was a, a popular cultural figure. Then he ran for president. He won overwhelmingly. And now he's faced with this. I mean, he's had quite a run, right, with the controversy with President Trump and then a new American administration and the increasing menace from Russia and now this full-blown invasion. And you can judge a man most based on how he handles the most difficult circumstances. And I would say the way that Zelensky has conducted himself has been nothing short of amazing. I mean, it's almost shocking the the clarity, the defiance that he has shown in the face of this threat, not just to his country, but to his life specifically. He is in grave danger, and he's refused to be evacuated from the country by the U.S. He reportedly said to the Biden administration, I don't need a ride, i.e. out of here. I need ammunition. He's staying. He's been in Kiev. He's been in the country. He's posted videos with his top officials by his side, looking directly to the world, looking into the camera and speaking not just to the global community, but to the person, Vladimir Putin, who would like very much, it would seem, to have him killed, saying, you're not going to scare me away from my country where I was elected to lead. It's so rare to see politicians who truly lead and who have the ultimate courage that they display, but Zelensky is doing it. There was a Washington Post report about the power of Zelensky's stand that he's taking and Zelensky's influence because I think other leaders around the world are sitting up and taking notice of the bravery, of the way that he is going about his business under the most difficult circumstances imaginable, he called into a teleconference with other world leaders just the other day, and the Washington Post describes it this way. He dialed into the meeting via teleconference with a bracing appeal that left some of the world-weary politicians with watery eyes. In just five minutes, Zelensky, speaking from the battlefield of Kiev, pleaded with European leaders for an honest assessment of his country's ambition to join the European Union and for genuine help in its fight with the Russian invaders. Ukraine needed its neighbors to step up with food, ammunition, fuel, sanctions, all of it. Quote, it was extremely emotional, said a European official briefed on the call. He was essentially saying, look, we're here dying for European ideals. Before ending the video call, Zelensky told the gathering, matter-of-factly, it might be the last time they saw him alive. Just that quickly, Zelensky's personal appeal overwhelmed the resistance from European leaders to imposing measures that could drive the Russian economy into a state of near collapse. The result has been a rapid-fire series of developments, boosting Ukraine's fright, uh, fight rather to hold off the Russian military and shattering the limits on European assertiveness in national security affairs. That is leadership. And now Putin has really created almost this, this folk hero. This man is an international hero, admired across the globe. And what is Putin going to do? Martyr him? 
As I started the program today, I said Putin has created this crisis and he seems to be in and over his head. Zelensky deserves some credit for that. Back here tomorrow on The Guy Benson Show. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.